The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Turning your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. We continue in our journey through Luke's Gospel, looking to verses 10 through 17 this morning. Luke 13, 10 through 17. Luke records this. He says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately, immediately, she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which you ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. And not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. That's the word of the Lord for us. Let's pray. Lord, your word is always true. It is always good is always right. It reveals you in all of your glory and marvelous splendor. Your word is perfect. And we pray that today, as we give our attention to this small section of Luke's gospel, that you would reveal yourself to us in ways that are new and fresh that you would rekindle our love for you and our affection for you and our desire to live a life that models your mercy and your compassion. And that we would glory in the healing that you bring. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're reading through Luke's Gospel... It may seem a little odd the way Luke organizes chapter 13. Uh, As we talked about last week, chapter 13 really flows right from the end of chapter 12. We have a chapter break in our Bible that isn't in the best and most opportune place as Jesus continues sort of a, a conversation and a teaching moment that began back in chapter 12 and spilled right over into the beginning of chapter 13. And he ended that previous section that ends with verse 9, with telling a brief parable that we discussed in in a little bit of detail last week. It was a, a very simple parable of a fig tree. And in that parable, it, he, was, he was warning Israel. 
He was warning the nation of people that identified themselves with God that they were on borrowed time. It was sort of a very, it was a very picturesque way of helping them to see that their time was running out as a nation. They were like a, a fig tree, he says, that were carefully planted but, but, but failed to bear fruit for years. The man who had planted it had ordered that it be cut down and destroyed because a tree that doesn't bear fruit, that is a fruit tree that doesn't bear fruit, is useless, a waste of the ground. But yet in the parable, there was an intervention by a vine dresser who, who, who says, hold on, let's give it another year. Let's give it one more year. We'll, we'll tend the tree a little bit. We'll do some special things here to give it one last shot, one last chance to bear fruit. And as we identified last week, this was Jesus' picturesque way of describing his life and his ministry. The coming of the Messiah was Israel's last opportunity to turn their hearts back toward God. But in spite of his teaching, and in spite of his miracles, even in this last-ditch effort, Israel rejected him. They showed no sign whatsoever of the fruit of repentance. And the nation remained a fruitless fig tree that was destined to be cut down. And there is no better example of that reality than this encounter we see immediately following in Luke's gospel. You may not necessarily catch it in the flow if you're just reading through it, but I want you to think of it in these terms. What we read about this morning is Luke giving Theophilus, the man to whom he's writing this book initially, and to all who read it, a clear and vivid picture of just how fruitless a fig tree Israel, the nation, and its religious system had become. And why in a very short amount of time God was going to cut them down. He gives it to us in this very sort of surprising and yet heart-rending encounter between Jesus and a woman in a synagogue. We're introduced to it in verse 10 as Luke lays it out for us. He simply says to us that there was he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now, Luke doesn't give us an exact chronological time marker here. He doesn't tell us when this occurred in relationship to the parable of the fig tree. Uh, we're just simply told it was on a Sabbath. And so that indicates to us that Luke is placing this here in his gospel thematically rather than chronologically. He's not just trying to give us a running history. He's trying to explain a theological message. And so his placement of this encounter here following the parable of the fig tree is meant to be thematically an illustration of that very parable. And we're simply told that Jesus was on this occasion teaching in the synagogue, which wasn't unusual. It wasn't unusual for synagogues and for the leaders of synagogues to invite traveling teachers, teachers who came through who were respected and known to step up and to teach on the Sabbath. And we've seen as we've walked through Luke's Gospels, and you've seen, no doubt, if you've read through the Gospels, that Jesus was willing to do this on more than one occasion when he would, as he normally did, enter a synagogue on the Sabbath day to worship God. He would accept the invitation 
to step up and to speak and to teach in the synagogue. And we're told that the people would often walk away from his teaching saying things like, nobody teaches like this man. His teaching is unlike anything that we hear from anybody else. Because he was altogether different than anyone else who ever stood to teach. But here in this encounter that we see in Luke 13, it's the last time that we see Jesus teaching in a synagogue in Luke's gospel. To the rest of the gospel, we won't see this again. It's the last time. And we're simply told that this event takes place on the Sabbath. It's the seventh day of the week. It is on Saturday, if you will. We've talked about this back in chapter 6, and we talked about it even previous to that in chapter 4. This issue of the Sabbath was a huge issue in Jesus' day. It was a huge issue because the religious leaders of Israel guarded the Sabbath with their lives. It was more important than just about anything, and they had, they had inundated the people with rules for what could and could not take place on the Sabbath, and they had, they had contorted and twisted God's intention for the Sabbath and made it into something that it wasn't at all. God, all the way back at creation, had established a pattern of Sabbath rest. He created the world in how many days? Six days, you all said together because you're awake this morning. He created the world in how many days? Six days. That's how many days he created the world in? Yes. And on the seventh day, God rested. That's what he did. He rested on the seventh day. All right. I roused you awake now. And he sets a pattern of Sabbath for man. The Sabbath was, was meant to be a blessing to men. It was meant to be a weekly opportunity for people to rest and to worship and to focus on spiritual things. It was meant to be a sort of a godly hedge against tyrannical employers who would normally, left to their own wiles, drive their employees into the dust seven days a week and leave no room for them to worship or attend to spiritual matters. It was meant to be a godly hedge against human ambition that would self-motivate to, to work seven days out of seven and not give any attention to spiritual matters. And so God established the Sabbath for man to rest, to build time into his and her life, to stop working, to get off the rat wheel of life, to take a deep breath, to stop thinking about work and to stop thinking about the demands that come with it. To stop thinking about money making and career building. And to think about God. And to think about his or her relationship with God. To open up God's word and study. To gather with God's people and worship and pray. To minister in his name to people who need ministry. It was meant to be a blessing to men. But by the time we get to Luke chapter 13, Israel is so far away from God as a religious nation and as a religious establishment, the Jewish faith, they have now turned the Sabbath into something that is far from a blessing. It is an absolute curse on the people. They've just piled on the people's shoulders hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules about what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. Something very simple as don't work on the Sabbath had turned into this labyrinth of demands that nobody could remember and nobody could keep. And it completely obscured the true meaning of the Sabbath and the true purpose of it. And yet the religious leaders who, who foisted all this on the people 
were just blazing hypocrites because they could always find some loophole in the law to allow them to do what they wanted to do on the Sabbath. And here, once again, Jesus confronts that hypocrisy concerning the Sabbath. He's already confronted it several times. In fact, there are seven times in the Gospels where Jesus intentionally heals on the Sabbath. And every time, it makes the religious leader's hair catch fire. Not literally, but they go nuts every time. They object, and they accuse him, and they threaten him, and yet he never stops doing it. He never hesitates to do it again, regardless of their objections. And this day is no exception to that rule. We're told that Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath. We don't know what he's teaching about on this particular Sabbath. Luke doesn't tell us, and it isn't germane to the, to the occasion. But what we are told is that, behold, a, a woman walks in during Jesus' teaching. The word behold indicates to us here that something unique is happening, something strange, something out of the ordinary is taking place that we need to pay attention to. As Jesus is teaching, a woman comes walking into the, to the place where he's teaching. Or better yet, she's likely shuffling her way into the room. Her condition would have made her a sight that would have stood out to everybody who was there. And it certainly captures Jesus' full attention. What is it that's unique about this woman where we're told that she's bent over and she could not fully straighten herself? This woman must have been a pitiful sight walking into the room. A woman who has literally got some sort of physical disability that has her bent over to where she cannot straighten herself up. If you read commentaries about these things, you'll find commentators speculating over and over as to what kind of malady she might have had that would have created this situation in her life. They speculate with all sorts of words that I can't even pronounce and don't even understand. Maybe one of the doctors in the room could help us with this. Whatever it was, it was an incredibly sad sight. This poor woman shuffling into worship, bent over and unable to stand upright. Can you imagine living with that kind of a condition in your life? I mean, how, how much we take for granted the ability to sit up in our bed in the morning and kick our feet over the side and stand upright and walk to the restroom, walk to the kitchen, dress ourselves upright, navigate our lives as a, as a human being with full dignity that can stand upright and, and function in a world of other upright people. What a sad and pitiful condition it would be to have to live your life like this all the time, unable to stand. Always looking at the ground. Never able to look somebody else directly in the eye. Always standing out as a spectacle from the crowd. What a horrible experience her life had been. This disability had impacted her in every way, you can imagine. It had impacted her ability to work and provide for her needs. It had impacted a, the, her ability to get a simple good night's rest. It had impacted her ability to have normal, sort of fulfilling human relationships. It infected and affected every part of her life. The things that come easy to you and I were hard for her, every one of them. 
because of this disability. It would have been both painful and humiliating to be known as the lady who walks around bent over. And if that wasn't bad enough, she lived in a culture where physical disability was seen as God's judgment on a person. Not only did this woman live with this painful and embarrassing and humiliating condition, but she walked around with the shame and the stigma of the accusing eyes of everybody in her culture who looked at her and thought to themselves, what a horrible sinner she must be for God to inflict that on her. So she's dealing with this physical disability and a spiritual stigma that came with it. And most people in her culture would have showed her absolutely no pity, believing in the back of their minds that she somehow deserved this. And yet there's no indication in the text that she did anything to deserve this. Nothing. Physical disability, sickness, disease, These are all parts of of living in a, a fallen and broken world. When God created the world, there was none of these things. It's when sin enters the world and begins to corrupt everything in creation that we begin to have things like disability and disease and disaster and sickness. They're all part of the corrupting influence of a sin broken world. And this woman was dealing with the hard realities of that in her body and in her spirit. There are some particular situations in which our suffering is directly related to our sin. If you drink too much alcohol, you can destroy your liver. And there is a way in which your sin is directly related to the suffering that comes from it. If you live your life fast and lose sexually, you can pick up a sexually transmitted disease and your sin has a direct correlation to your suffering. There are particular situations in which that is the reality. But in most cases, suffering and disease and sickness and disability is just part of life in a broken, deformed world. Commentator by the name of Hubeck writes this. He says, according to the biblical account in Genesis, tragedy struck with the fall of mankind with devastating impact on every aspect of creation. Our world became an abnormal world. Disability is simply a more noticeable form of the brokenness that is common to human experience. It is a normal part of life in an abnormal world. I think he hits the nail on the head. Incidentally, this is the third time in Luke's gospel that we've seen Jesus meet a disabled person in the context of worship. You may remember if you were here back when we studied chapter 4 that Jesus was in the synagogue on a very similar sort of an occasion where there was a man who was, had an unclean spirit, a demon who was demonically possessed who screamed out in the middle of church and Jesus heals him. There was in Luke chapter 6 uh, another occasion where Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath and there's a man there who's disabled. He's got a hand that is withered and is unusable. And now he meets this woman who's bent over and can't stand. We're told regularly of Jesus' heart and his compassion for the sick and the afflicted. But it seems like in the context of worship, he's particularly moved by these things when he sees it. And he cannot ignore it. 
the human suffering that he sees in the context of worship, he addresses. And so he chooses to act. He casts out the demon in Luke 4. He heals the man with the withered hand in Luke 6. And here he's going to heal this pitiful woman who's been bent over with this horrible condition. We're only told two things about her disability. We're told first that it's gone on for 18 years. 18 years. This woman has been in chronic pain for 18 years. She's been looked upon as a horrible sinner by everybody in her culture for 18 years. No doubt, year after year after year, she had prayed for God to heal her. For 18 years, she had found no relief. It's been a long time. We're told that it's been a long time, and we're told that the cause of this is related somehow to a disabling spirit. Luke doesn't elaborate on this. He doesn't give us any further detail. Anything we say about it is pure speculation. All that we can say at this point, by looking, sort of zooming out of the totality of what Scripture has to say about this matter, is this. Not every sickness, disease, and disability is demonic at its source. Most sickness, disease, and stuff that we deal with in our lives is organic. It's part of living in a fallen world. And that's why when you and I get sick, we go to the doctor. We don't go look for an exorcist. But we do know there are occasions when there is a correlation between the physical and the spiritual. We see, at least in the Old Testament book of Job, a very clear example of this, where Satan himself is given permission by God to afflict this man, Job. And among all the afflictions and all the horrible things that happen in Job's life, one of the pieces of that is terrible physical affliction and suffering. His health goes to pot. Directly attributed to Satan himself. God allows it temporarily for some purpose that we're not fully aware of, and certainly Job wasn't fully aware of. In this case, when Jesus heals this woman, it's interesting that he never addresses any demons. He doesn't give any reference to casting out a demon. The demons don't speak through her like, like they did in chapter 4 with that man. There's really no other mention of it here. All we can say is that whatever's going on in the life of this woman, that there is in some way, it is a, a malady that has a, both a physical component and a spiritual component. And in some way, Jesus deals with both of those things at the same time. But the bottom line composite picture we see when we look at this woman is we see a woman who's best described by two words. She's helpless and she's hopeless. She's helpless and she's absolutely hopeless. There is absolutely nothing she can do to heal herself. Nothing. She's been like this for 18 years, and if it's up to her, she'll live the rest of her life this way. She's helpless to do anything about it. She's hopeless in the sense that there's nobody else who can heal her either. There's no doctor, there's no spiritual leader, there's no guru she can go to who has, can do one single thing to help her. She has no hope that anybody else will be able to help her either. The only hope that this woman has is that God would miraculously intervene in her life, that he would in, in, sort of enter into her world and do for her what she cannot do for herself, that he would enter into her broken experience and do for her what nobody else could do for her, that he would somehow find her, that he would somehow have mercy on her, that somehow he would remove her deformity and restore her what's been broken. 
That's her only hope. And no doubt she had been praying for that for a long time. We need to stop for a minute and see as we look at this woman and her physical experience. We need to see a mirror that shows our face in the reflection. Because everything that this woman is physically is a picture of what every single one of us is spiritually apart from Christ. The Bible declares that every one of us are sinners who rebelled against God. And the sin that we have engaged in and the sin that we've adopted in our life has corrupted and deformed us spiritually. And we have absolutely no means to cure ourselves. And there's nobody else that can help us either. And just like this woman, our only hope is that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, would come into our brokenness, that he would find us, that he would have mercy on us, that he would remove our spiritual deformity, and that he would restore us to himself. It's our only hope. That was her only hope, and that's our only hope. She's a picture of us. Oh, we stand upright. We can walk around and dress ourselves. But spiritually, we are just as broken apart from Christ. And we are just as helpless. And we are just as hopeless. And we are just as, we are in just as much a desperate need for Christ to intervene as she was. We can't leave looking at this woman without noting one other thing, that in spite of her condition, this woman was faithful to gather and worship. If anybody had any excuse to stay home on the Sabbath, this woman had an excuse. I mean, think of all the barriers she had to overcome just to get up and to get herself to the synagogue on the Sabbath. She had a hundred barriers in the way. She had to overcome chronic pain. She had to overcome shame and embarrassment. She had to overcome the discouragement of unanswered prayer year after year after year. And yet here she is, showing up, shuffling her way in to worship with God's people on the Sabbath. She may not have understood God's will in the midst of her disability, but she knew he was still her only hope. She refused to lose faith and to walk away. She refused to let anger and bitterness take root in her heart. On the Sabbath, she got up and she went to worship with God's people, even if God's people were rejecting her. And her faithfulness was rewarded on this day. I don't want to belabor the point, but just simply to say this. Her testimony really, the testimony of this woman, is a, is a true indictment on the fickleness of our worship. How very, very little it takes to keep us away from gathering with God's people. How many distractions we have in our lives. How little pain, how little inconvenience it takes to keep us away. But not this woman. She shows up. Week after week after week. And finally, after 18 years, her prayers are answered. We see in verse 12, Christ's compassion in relation to her demonic deformity. We're told this, when Jesus saw her, 
He called her over and he said to her, woman, you're free from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Amazing, isn't it? Just look at the activities of Christ in that simple two verses. Jesus saw her. He noticed her coming in. Probably everybody else noticed her as well. But Jesus truly saw her. He didn't just notice her. He saw her. He saw what was going on in her life. He saw the outside and he saw the inside. He saw the human suffering that this woman had been dealing with year after year after year. He saw the the demonic deformity that was taking place in her life. He saw both the physical suffering and he saw the spiritual affliction. He saw it all. She wasn't invisible to him. She wasn't an outcast unworthy of his notice. She was a beautiful creation of God, deformed by evil. He saw her. Another point I don't intend to belabor, but I just think it's worth mentioning. You and I, and most of us in our culture, tend to ignore the disabled. I mean, we can be aware of their presence, but we tend to just walk by and try not to look. Act as though they're not there. In the first century, it was far worse. But Jesus saw her, and he couldn't look the other way. He couldn't ignore the suffering she was dealing with. So he called her over to himself. I can only imagine the shock and the surprise that this woman experienced when the rabbi, the guest rabbi, Jesus, in the middle of teaching apparently, calls her out, singles her out, and asks her to come forward. When you're already self-conscious about your sort of malady, You don't want it pointed out, but here's the teacher pointing you out in front of the whole place and asking you to come to the front. Not only that, but Jewish rabbis did not ever directly speak to women in general, and they certainly wouldn't have done it in the midst of corporate worship. So everything about him calling her out is is scandalous and unbelievable. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't wait for her to ask for healing. He initiates the whole encounter. The only thing this woman does is respond to his invitation to come. And so he calls her. And then we see he laid his hands on her. Again, we've seen this before at least once. And we noted it back then. Jesus does not have to touch her to heal her. We know that, right? He did not have to touch her to heal her. We've seen him heal a number of ways. We've seen him heal when he wasn't even present. We've seen him heal with a word. But here again, like we saw with a leper previously, Jesus chooses chooses to lay his hands on her and to touch her. Who knows how long it's been since anybody touched this poor woman. Jesus wanted her to know that he identified with her suffering. He wanted her to know that he loved her and he wasn't ashamed to put his hands on her. And he wanted everybody else in the room to know that too. So he touched her and he spoke to her. His message was clear and straightforward, wasn't it? Woman, you're freed from your disability. Whatever, fear, whatever physical and spiritual forces had, had, had disabled her, in the moment, they're gone. In a moment, gone. She's freed from them. In a moment, in an instant, 18 years of suffering, over with. Done, completely. The pain is gone. The stigma is gone. 
This woman who had been in bondage for so long is now free. And she was immediately made straight, we're told. For the first time in 18 years, she stands upright. For the first time in 18 years, she looks somebody straight in the eyes. For the first time in 18 years, she feels relief from her pain. She's able to walk upright and to see where she's going. For the first time in 18 years, she can walk into a crowd and blend in and not stand out. In a minute, in a second, in a moment, her suffering is over. She's free, completely free. Can you imagine what it would be like to either experience that or even to be in the room and see it happen? Remarkable, an indisputable miracle that could only be done by God, proving that Jesus is not just a man, he is God in human flesh. How does she respond? Well, we're told she glorified God. Boy, wouldn't you have loved to see that? Man, I can't imagine what it was like, but I could picture it in my mind. This woman's heart must have exploded in that moment with praise to God. Don't you think? All those years of praying, all those years of suffering, and finally, in an instant, God has answered her prayer. He's removed her deformity and her disability, and he's made her whole. He's restored her. This woman's heart explodes in joy and wonder and worship as she glorifies God. She was hopeless and she was helpless, yet God in his mercy came to her. He entered into her brokenness. He touched her, and he made her whole in a minute. Listen, my friends, when you truly encounter the mercy of God like that in your life, Nobody has to prod you to worship him. Nothing will stop you from giving him glory. I'm convinced that so much of our worship is empty and half-hearted because one of two things, we either severely misunderstand the depth of our own brokenness or we severely misunderstand the, the depth of his mercy in saving us. This woman was under no confusion about either one of those things. And her heart exploded in worship. And that should have been everybody's response who witnessed this, shouldn't it? I mean, that church should have broke out in worship like no Jewish synagogue had ever done before. Unfortunately, that's not exactly what occurs because the leader of the place is not one bit happy about what takes place. Verse 13, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He said to the people, now this is amazing. There are six days in, in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. I mean, that, can you even imagine? Can you even imagine? What kind of a fool is this? He's the leader of the church. He's the ruler of the synagogue. Instead of being overjoyed that this poor woman has been restored, he's livid, he's furious. And the reason he's furious is because Jesus did this. He had the nerve to heal a suffering woman of 18 years on the Sabbath. How dare he? It's unclear exactly which of the hundreds of man-made laws that this man thinks Jesus broke, but nothing he did seems to fall in the category of work. All he really did was speak to the woman and touch her. I don't know how you construe either of those things as work, unless you consider him a doctor. I don't know. But like 
the vast majority of the religious leaders in Israel at his time, this man was blind to the truth. His legalism and his devotion to religious rules had rendered him absolutely blind to the true work of God when it was right in front of his face. He couldn't see it. He can't recognize it. He can't celebrate it. All he can see is the rules are broken. And that's what legalism does every time it infects a human heart. Legalists don't truly care about people. They care about the rules. They care about protecting their precious rules and their petty pride. Jesus, on the other hand, is merciful and he's compassionate. He doesn't give a rip about the man-made rules. He cares about this poor woman and her suffering. And his love drives him to do something about it. A synagogue leader, he, he despises this woman. He couldn't care less about her. She's nothing more than a prop to accuse Jesus. But Jesus loves the poor and he loves the broken. And over and over again in the Bible, he has compassion on him. He never uses people for his own selfish purposes. He delights in setting them free from their burdens. I mean, what a stupid thing to say to the church. All right, all you people out there, Listen, you got seven days in a week. On six of those days, you can show up here and find the mercy of God in healing. But you better not do that on the Sabbath when we worship God. Don't you come here looking for mercy from God when we gather to worship God. It makes you wonder what he expected them to get when they came to worship. What an insane thing to say. But his legalism blinds him to the insanity of his message. He doesn't even have the courage to address Jesus directly, so we're told he addresses the crowd, right? His religious rules are so sick that they've made mercy and compassion illegal on the Sabbath. How do you make mercy and compassion illegal on the day of worship. And yet that's exactly what he's done. And really it was just another expression of their own selfishness. These man-made rules were really just an excuse to avoid the demands of loving their neighbor. He doesn't want to help this woman. He doesn't want to have to care about her. Listen, you know that a religious system is dead and it's lifeless and it's worthless when a hopeless woman who's disabled for 18 years gets healed by God in the midst of worship and the primary response is anger and disdain and rejection. That's how you know a religious system is dead and lifeless, devoid of God, and absolutely worthless. When a pitiful woman can come in after suffering for so long and find the mercy of God and be healed, and the only response you've got is, what business do you have doing that today? You should have done that on some other day. Get out of here. If you can't see the glory of God in something like this, you're spiritually dead. You have no idea who God is. If you can't celebrate the mercy of God extended to a hopeless, disabled lady, but you'd rather stand up and accuse her of breaking the church rules, you've got a cold, dead heart that knows nothing about the glory of God. And that's what this man had. 
And Jesus exposes it in a humiliating sort of a way. He says, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? Here's the message that he's saying. Listen, you people are such hypocrites. When you get out of church, you'll go untie your donkey or your ox and you'll walk, even walk the donkey over to the water and let him get a drink of water to relieve his thirst. You'll unbind your donkey that's only been bound for a couple of hours and you'll walk him over to relieve his thirst. And here is a, a woman, a daughter of Abraham, who's been suffering for 18 years, bound by a demon, and you have no compassion for her. You care more about your stupid animal, donkey, than you care about this daughter of Abraham. A woman created in the image of God, precious to him, deformed by evil. And you despise her. You care more about your, your ox than you do about her. Your stupid rules allow you to walk your ox to get water, but don't allow her to get healed from 18 years of demonic oppression. What a message. Well, we're told the leader was humiliated as he should be, right? He's humiliated. And we're told at the end of the passage, his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Verse 17. Well, it seems like the church got it at least on that day. What an incredible encounter. What a marvelous Savior we have. What do we make of all that? Well, let me just give you a couple of things to sort of just hang your hat on at the end. God is a God who's merciful and gracious, He is a God who is merciful and He's gracious who cares about people who nobody else cares about. We've been trekking through a section of Luke's gospel that's been very exhortation heavy. We've been talking about repent or perish, and we've heard Jesus say some really hard things that might cause you to, to walk away thinking that he's got this hard edge about him. But Luke wants us to see here a very clear picture that Jesus is merciful and he's compassionate. I don't know what your first thoughts are when you think about God. So many people that I run across think about him primarily as angry and vengeful or disappointed or indignant. But the Bible over and over declares that God is a God who is merciful and he's gracious and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. If your first thoughts about God don't include those kinds of characteristics, then you're thinking wrongly about who God is. And it's probably affecting how you relate to him and how you worship him and how you respond to him in your life. In Exodus 34, verse six, when, when Moses asked God to, to show him his glory, what does God show him? We're told in verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When, when God shows his glory to Moses, the, the one thing that God shows him and makes clear to him is that he's a merciful and he's a compassionate and a gracious God who's slow to get angry who's filled to overflowing with a love that doesn't end. 
And if you were to flip over to the book of Joel, in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, the message that God delivers even to his rebellious nation who is running hard and fast away from him, the message to them, even those who are running from him, rebelling against him, facing his wrath at the moment, what is his message to them? Is it, you better get straight or I'm going to smash you? No, his message is this, Joel 2, 13, return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and he's merciful. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. Hey, if you'll just turn around, you know what you'll find about God? You'll find about God that he's gracious and they don't have mercy on you. They'll hold back his hand of disaster. He'll enter into the midst of your rebellion. He'll enter into the midst of your deformity and he'll restore you. Our God is a God who's merciful and he's gracious. Aren't you glad to hear that this morning? Aren't you glad that you serve a God who is gracious and merciful? That he isn't angry with you 24-7? Who isn't looking for just the next opportunity for you to blow it so he can zap you with some sort of pain? <clears throat> and I guess two other things just real quickly. And I've already mentioned this. We're that woman. We are all that woman to some degree apart from Christ. Our only hope is that Jesus would come to us, that he would call us to himself, that he would reach out and touch us with his mercy and his grace, that he would remove our sin that's deformed us, and that he'd restore us and make us whole. The good news of the gospel that we've been seeing over and over and over in Luke is that Jesus will do that, in fact, for anybody who comes to him, anybody who responds to his invitation, anyone who recognizes their own helplessness and their own hopelessness, who believes that he is the Son of God who lived and died on a cross, was buried and raised three days later. Anybody who hears his invitation to come and responds in repentance and faith, he will do what he did for that woman physically, spiritually, in their heart and in their soul. He'll restore them. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never done that. You need to see him this morning as merciful and compassionate with an open invitation to you. All you need to do is respond. And then I just leave you with this last thought. And it's really just a question. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've experienced spiritually what that woman experienced both physically and spiritually that day. And you've been walking with him. Consider this question. Are there ways in which you and I hide behind spiritual sounding excuses in order to uh, avoid the demands of loving our neighbor? Do we find all sorts of spiritual ways to make excuses to avoid the demands of loving our neighbor? Do we do that? Do we see those in need and walk the other way? Do we see those who are suffering and think, ah, somebody else is gonna have to help that lady? Do we find ways to excuse ourselves to, to avoid the disabled, to avoid those who suffer? Do we excuse ourselves and find ways to avoid exercising mercy and compassion on those who need it? It's worth thinking about this morning, I think. Let's pray together. Lord, you've given us much to ponder. 
when we see you in all of your glory and all of your wisdom and all of your truth like this, it exposes the darkness of our own hearts. We're reminded of how helpless and hopeless we truly are apart from you. We are reminded how unlike you we really are and how desperately every day we need your mercy and your grace and your compassion. And we thank you that your mercies never end. That you don't show us mercy today and then not tomorrow. That you don't give it to us this week but withhold it next week. You're a God whose mercies and compassion and love never ends. We celebrate that. And we confess we want to be more like you. Our mercy is inconsistent. Our compassion toward others is inconsistent. And we want to be more like you. So help us by your spirit to be sensitive to those who are suffering and those who are disabled and those who are hurting. Motivate us to stop and do what we can to help. Oh, we're not you. We can't speak a word and make disability go away. But we can come alongside and we can pray and we can show compassion and we can be a friend to those who are suffering. We can let them know that we care and that they're not alone. And we can do what we can to meet their physical needs, to help them, to bring some sense of relief. And we can pray with them that you would heal them. Lord, for the man or the woman this morning who's here that doesn't know you or Jesus as their Lord and Savior, help them to see themselves in this woman. And to know that you're merciful and compassionate. That if they'll just accept your invitation and run to you this morning, confessing their sin, place their trust in you, you'll redeem them. You'll restore them. You'll save them. Oh, would you do that this morning? By the power of your spirit, we pray for your sake and your sake alone. Amen.